Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series, and we want to thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, we have a very special guest on the line with Dr. Bill tonight. Her, we have a, a Parissa Lamara, who is a parent of a almost four-year-old and I'm going to say eight-year-old by now. Is Brennan eight now, Parissa? He is still seven, but almost. Seven. Okay. <laughs> a seven-year-old. Um, and they both have visual impairments, and Parissa will tell us more about that later. But um, she is a um, very active and actively involved with many programs in the Southern California area, and we're happy to know that we're, we are very happy to know her in our program as well. Um, and another interesting part of Parissa's life is that she has gone on to um, become a teacher of the visually impaired, and she's in the program now and nearing completion of that program. And we are just so happy that she's joined our field as well. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to hand it over to Dr. Bill and Parissa. And um, I think Dr. Bill needs no indirect introduction at this point, but uh, we are just very fortunate to have him tonight, too. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Sue, and thank you, Parissa, for taking the time from your family. I'm certain that your husband and your kids are all waiting for you to prepare dinner tonight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this evening, though, that we have a really, really interesting topic, and I think it's really a very, very important topic that is often overlooked. And we're going to talk about some of the things that are important for parents and teachers and therapists and early intervention specialists to think about before you make an appointment for your child. I know that for myself, I was really shocked as I was scheduling appointments for myself. As many of you might know that uh, in 2004, I was diagnosed with a eye condition and I saw many, many eye doctors. And I was so surprised at how much time I spent in these doctors' offices. In some cases, I would schedule an appointment at 8 o'clock, and I didn't see the doctor till 1 o'clock. I scheduled appointments at 1 o'clock. I didn't see the doctor until 5 o'clock. And I even scheduled the last appointment of the day, and I didn't see the doctor until maybe two and a half hours later. So I was really very, very surprised to see how difficult it could be in these offices and I know, Prissa, you with your children, when you took your children to get their eyes checked, what are some of the things that really surprised you and what were some of the things that were very frustrating for you as a mother who was making an appointment? Well, the length of time, Dr. Bill, you're right. Sometimes the waiting period can be rather long, and especially with children who are young. It's hard to keep them entertained for that amount of time, so I found it very, very helpful to take lots of snacks. And um, some of the other surprising things were, you know, it took us quite a few different doctors to finally get to the right one who was able to diagnose my children. And um, I know not everyone's had that same experience, but sometimes you have to keep trying until you can find someone who specializes in what your children have. Well, what was your first uh, experience with it? You just noticed that your your children weren't really making eye contact, or what gave you the first clue that there was something wrong? And well, how was it that you were able to find a, a doctor who was able to identify the condition? Well, in hindsight, um, I should have known from day one, to be honest with you. And when my daughter was born, I did. She was born almost four years after my son. But when my son was born, the first signs were nystagmus, 
Um, his eyes would bounce around in his head, kind of like cherries in a slot machine. And he never made eye contact, didn't look at anything, and he would always look up and over our heads to the left. And so much so that he's got a permanent flat spot on the back of his head from never turning his head. And so even with those signs, you know, I didn't have any experience with visual impairments, and I had never been in contact even with anyone who was visually impaired, so I knew nothing. There's no blindness in either me or my husband's families. So at about two months, my husband first said something, and um, I was still in denial. And then my friend at the time had a daughter who was four days younger than my son, and she brought her daughter over one day, and the two kids were lying on the ground side by side, and uh, my friend's daughter was watching her mom like a dart, just following her all around the room. That's what babies do usually, you know, they just they look. And my son, as usual, was staring off to the left, and it was at that point that I could no longer deny there was something wrong. And so that afternoon, I took him to the pediatrician with my sister. And um, when we got there, the pediatrician came in, and she, you know, shone some lights in his eyes and looked at him for a few minutes and said, you know, there's something wrong. I think he may be blind. You need to see a specialist. And then she left. And so that was our, our first real knowledge of that he could be blind. And there was no discussion or no counseling from no. the pediatrician at that time? No. I think she was as shocked as we were. <laughs> she just walked out of the room. And, you know. um, yeah, it was, it was not a good day. I mean, and that is so tragic. And I have to admit the same thing, for example, in, in my profession, the field of optometry, we are taught how to diagnose all sorts of different conditions, prescribe medications, recommend surgeries, all these things. But there was never a class that would explain or give us strategies of how to present the bad news. And I think that most eye doctors are so uncomfortable in giving this type of bad news that the easiest thing for them to do is to give the bad news and to walk out. And that has to be just so devastating uh, uh, for the parent is you. Now, yes. did this yes. doctor even at least give you the name of a pediatric eye specialist, like a pediatric ophthalmologist? No, no. She literally just left. And um, I contacted, this is another frustrating aspect of, of the whole thing, is when you have an HMO, you have to wait for a referral for a specialist. And that could take up to a month. So you just receive this devastating news, but it hasn't been confirmed, and you have to see a specialist to confirm it, and you can't get in for a month. So I um, went home, and I found the number for one who lived very, who worked very close to where I lived at the time. And I called them hysterical, and um, the lady who answered the phone took pity on me and said, you know what, forget it, you can just come in tomorrow. So I was able to go see the specialist on the following day. Well, that was nice. That was somewhat of a relief and things. But still, it's very difficult, and I'm certain, uh, did you just go on the computer and try to Google and search everything, eyes shaking, child doesn't make eye contact, and look up everything that you could on the Internet? Surprisingly enough, Dr. Bill, I didn't at that point. The Googling didn't come until later. Um, I think that the shock, and I was just so, well, I was also, you know, I just had a child, so my hormones were in a flux, and, you know, I was overwhelmed with the news. And so the next day we went to see the pediatric ophthalmologist, and um, that visit was perhaps the longest visit of my life because, as you know, once, you know, you go to see an ophthalmologist, they put the drops into the eyes, and then you have to wait for 20 minutes for the drops to take effect. And so I think those were the longest 20 minutes of my life. I think I sat on the floor and cried. 
And when he came back in, he, you know, put on his headgear and he looked into my son's eyes and he showed him various, you know, objects and, and bowls and things. And then he said that there was nothing structurally wrong with his eyes and that he was just delayed. He had a delayed visual maturation and that he needed classes and then everything would be fine. So at that point, I still didn't feel the need to Google and we went straight to get him his first pair of eyeglasses and then we waited and unfortunately his sight never really kicked in. Wow, gosh. And that's another that's another type of opposite letdown where one tells you everything's going to be fine and things didn't change. No, no, things didn't change. The glasses didn't magically make him see as we were hoping and then the stagnus continued. And um I, you know, I was seeing that nothing was changing and so I didn't feel comfortable with the what the doctor had said, so I went to see a second specialist well, second pediatric ophthalmologist, and that doctor, this was maybe a couple months later, I think my son was about four or five months old at this time. So the second doctor also took a look into my son's eyes, and again, he said that there was nothing structurally wrong with his eyes, and he gave me some really great advice that, unfortunately, I couldn't take at the time, not completely, and he said, you have a beautiful son, just go home and enjoy him. So that was probably the best advice I got that first year. But yeah. You know, when you're worried and you can't really relax. So I, I regret that I wasn't able to fully relax in that time. But that's just really human nature. At that point in time, you are so focused on what can he see or what's going on with the eyes that you forget to look at all of these other types of things. And my goodness, how difficult was it for you to get a second referral to a pediatric ophthalmologist? Did the HMO give you any difficulties? Um, you know what? It, it wasn't difficult. It was just time-consuming. It, it would take a month in between the referrals. And so it was just a matter of being patient and, and, and waiting. And, you know, since that time, we have switched to a PPO, so we don't have to deal with the HMO process anymore, which I would strongly recommend. If anybody can, they should when you have, you know, a child with special needs. But um, after that, we then went, because I think by about five or six months, and there was still no real vision, and he wasn't making any improvements in his sight, it was at that point that the ophthalmologist told us that perhaps it was something that had to do with his brain. And then we were referred to a neurologist. And that was a whole other, you know, batch of testing and things like that. So it wasn't until my son was about nine months old that we went back to the original ophthalmologist who took a look in his eyes again. And this time he said, you know, there's something structurally wrong. I see atrophied spots on his retinas and I th it's a coloboma. And that's what he said that was the diagnosis. And that was when the Googling started. And what happened when you started to Google? What did you find out as you Googled? Was it news that really helped you, or was it news that devastated you, or was it news that gave you hope? Um, with the coloboma diagnosis, no. It was not news that gave me hope. And, you know, when you Google, it's human nature to Google. You want to know, and you want the information, and perhaps when you're with the doctor, you're not thinking of the right questions to ask. And so, of course, when you get home, you want to get online and get all the information. But... I've learned that a little bit of information is a very bad thing <laughs> and that everything that you read on Google, you're not really sure of what source it's coming from, if it's a trustworthy source. And also, whatever you read, you should take with a grain of salt and then use it to make a list of questions for the next time you go see the doctor. And that's, that's great advice. And this is something that I tell the parents of the patients that we see. I tell them, do not Google. Do not <laughs> Google. No matter how much you want to Google, do not Google. And the reason for that is most of the cases 
that people put on Google and talk about a two-year-old boy with such and such a condition, these are usually the most spectacular cases. So these are kids who might have a brain tumor and they have a kidney tumor and they have a genetic disorder. I mean, you often see many, 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 many problems. And in most cases, what I usually find in most cases, the children that do have many different types of conditions do not have all of these other types of problems. For example, you may have read that with coloboma, which means the incomplete development of part of the eye, can be associated with something that is called charge syndrome, where the child has a coloboma of the eye, they have a heart problem, they have problems with their ears, they have mental retardation, they have gastrointestinal problems. I mean, you read every one of these types of problems and you start thinking, my goodness, my child has all of these problems. But in reality, most children with a coloboma don't have those types of problems. So I think that just as you suggested, people shouldn't look at it. Or if they do look at it, understand that these are probably the worst cases ever because that is how they get published because they are something that is spectacular. Now, one of the things, too, that I think is really, really helpful is that Sue and and many others from the Birth to Five Network, they have developed a book that is called From Birth to Five, and it really is almost like a roadmap to inform the parents of children who have vision impairment. And, Sue, can you just real briefly talk about this booklet and discuss how this might be distributed. Are pediatricians going to be carrying this, or how might we be able to get this into the hands of parents at an earlier age to reduce a lot of that stress? Absolutely. Um, and it, it's actually a collaborative uh, effort of, of, of agency from the Birth to Five Vision Network, and um, it was designed for us to kind of look at ways to help for us to kind of come up with, with a, uh, a packet form of materials that parents can use uh, to be able to begin their process, begin their journey, and actually uh, that's sort of our theme, it's journey on a busy highway, and the idea is that, you know, we need help in navigating um, the, the types of, of challenges that are, are that face the parents that we see. Um, starts out with some information just about, in general, about early intervention and what that is and what it can, how it can help your child. Um, then it talks about um, medical appointments, how to prepare for your medical appointment, um, tips for what, like Chris was mentioning, bring along snacks or bring along a friend or a uh, another interventionist with you that can kind of help you remember the questions that you had already developed uh, or help or someone who can help you develop the questions that you might be able to ask a doctor to get some of your questions answered. Um, also, and it also kind of is designed to help parents understand that, you know, there's not ever going to be an easy answer for anything, but we can certainly keep trying to um, seek out the resources and people that can help us be able to get as much information as we can at any stage in that child's development. It also uh, goes into a bit about, just in terms of development, um, things to expect when your child's visual impairment. And there's a great section on myths and realities that really speak to the ideas that um, some of the things that we, we think are going to happen that maybe won't happen and how we can actually circumvent a situation or, or avoid a situation just by what you were saying, just playing with your child or how can you help encouraging a child by just allowing them to be who they are. Um, 
things like that that we hope will be very helpful for parents. We're going to be uh, unveiling this uh, at our event, our, our Birth Decide Vision Network event, on March 24th, and there's information on our website. That's www.birthdecidevision.org, and there's registration materials there where there can be you can download them and, and certainly send them in. Um, we're also going to make a, an effort to get these out to pediatricians and regional centers and family resource centers all over the area of California, and um, it'll be free, free, free for all parents. And uh, like I said, we'll be putting together a big marketing marketing uh, campaign to make sure it gets in the hands of as many people as, as, as can really benefit from it. So uh, be looking for that. Well, that's great. Thank you, Sue. And so people great could welcome. get that at uh, birth two five. Vision.org? Yes, it will be available online soon, um, but they will definitely be able to get it at our event on March 24th. And information on that event, which will be held at the Blind School Learning Center in Santa Ana on March 24th, that's a Saturday, is available on our website. So um, downloadable registration information is available um, on our website. And which website is that? Are you referring that's- to birth2fivevision.org? Or yes. royalinstitute.org? No, actually, I'm referring to the www.birthdefivision.org website. Okay, great, great. Sure. And that's a great booklet that all of you should keep with you and start to distribute it because as mm-hmm. more and more doctors and healthcare providers have access to that book, if they ever suspect that a child has vision problems, they could give this short little booklet to parents and it explains to parents that just because a child is visually impaired, it doesn't mean that this child cannot do things. It gives parents guidelines of how to raise a child who's visually impaired. It talks about the ophthalmologist's perspective and how the optometrist perceive working with children with these types of visual conditions. And when the parents read these different types of chapters, they then understand what they could do to help their child to achieve. And the one thing that I am just really, really so grateful, I am so grateful to the fact that there's so much technology available that even for myself as a person who is now totally blind, I cannot believe all the things that I am able to do. I I, I really feel that I am busier now as a blind person as compared when I did have vision. And a lot of the things that I used to believe that a person who had vision impairment cannot do the things that a person who is sighted could do, that's absolutely false. That's absolutely false. Um, so getting back to how you could make the most of your appointment when you do see an eye doctor, Prissa, what's some of the best information that you have to share with a lot of our listeners? And I think let's start out with what are some of the best recommendations that you could make for your child first? I think we have to think of the child first. So, for example, I feel it's very important that we schedule the appointment for your child maybe at a time of the day that your child is at his or her best. If your child's a really, really grouchy baby in the afternoon, I think we really want to try to make a morning appointment. Uh, What are some other things that you have learned and created ideas of, Prisa? I agree with you, Dr. Bill. I think that, especially for small children, the morning visits are the best. 
And I think if you can try to schedule it in the middle of the week or even ask um, when you call to make the appointment when is the slowest time of the week and schedule it for that time, that would probably be the best way to go. I think it's imperative to take somebody with you. I think that you should take either a spouse or a parent or I know for one of my um, doctor's visits for my children, I took um, Julie from the Braille Institute, and she came along with me. In that way, that person is there for support, but also to you know understand the information that's being doled out by the doctor and to ask questions that you're forgetting to because as a parent, when you're in that situation, you're just so overwhelmed with the emotion of it. And when the doctor tells you something, you start thinking about what he just said, and then you're stuck in that, and he's gone on to talk about other things, and you're still thinking about what he said five minutes ago. So, you know, you have a tendency to skip over information. So for that reason, too, I would strongly recommend taking someone with you. And if the physician will allow it, you can always ask if you can tape record the session so you can get all the information and go home and listen to it again if you need to. That's a great, great suggestion because, you know, your pediatrician wants to know what the doctor said, your husband or wife wants to know, and your in-laws always need to know everything, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, so take a, and take a list of questions. You know, when you sit down beforehand, when you're clear-headed, you can write down all the things you want to ask, and that way when you get there, you don't have to worry about, did I forget to ask him this? Yeah, what, what were some of those types of questions? You know, a lot of times parents they really cannot think of questions when they're in the exam room. Sometimes it's out of respect. I mean, there are some cultures that will not ask questions. Other people, the news is just so shocking that they can't think. But what what do you think are some of the more important questions that you remember to ask the doctor about uh, your, your, your son's vision? Well, the, I think the questions evolve as you become more accustomed to what's going on. I know I think a couple of my first questions that I asked when I first got the news was, will he drive and will he have a girlfriend? I don't know why I found that so important. And the doctor yeah. told me, well, I hope he does have a girlfriend, but chances are no, he's probably not going to drive. So um, I think those are the things that parents are thinking about initially when you get news like this. But once some time passes, you know, you can ask about different ways to help your child. I, whenever we go, because we go annually to see the retinal specialist, I ask if there's been any change in my children's retinas in the atrophied spots from the year previous, just to know, you know, if it's getting worse because their their disease, they have LCA, is degenerative. Um, I also ask if there's anything I can do to help them maintain what vision they have, if there's any supplements that I can give them. Um, if it was sunglasses, you know, during the day or in bright light would help them with their sight. So what are some things I can do to help them utilize what vision they have? Um, I ask them if there's any kind of assistive technology that I should be aware of at this time. And I usually try to get a letter from the doctors expressing what the diagnosis is and what the acuity is. That way you have something to give the schools, which I've found very helpful. That helps with services. And let me see what else is there. And do you find, for the, do you find for the most part, Prissa, that the doctors are pretty good about writing these reports for you? You know, you may have to ask a few times. And usually, the most I can get is a letter. And um, you know, it's taken a couple of phone calls for me to get the letter. But yes, I've been able to get letters from the doctors, which is really helpful. Oh, and I remember. 
Something else that I try to do is, um, you know, oftentimes when you have a child with special needs, you're going to see more than one doctor. So it's helpful to compile the names and the phone numbers of the various doctors and to get those reports so you can share them with the new doctor or the one you're going to see so everyone can be in the same loop. That's great. That's really great. Now, one of the things that the Braille Institute has put together, they have put together a notebook. And this is a notebook that I would recommend that all the families use because this notebook will have all the information about the child's vision and the child's visual history. So one of the things that I think is very helpful for all of the parents who bring their child in to see the eye doctors is to obtain a book from the Braille Institute. And, Sue, you want to talk about that book that you guys put together, and it really, really makes a tremendous difference for all of us doctors so that we know the whole story of the child, and it makes it faster for us to do the examination. And it also gives us time to answer your questions. So, Sue, can you talk about sure. that book? Sure. Well, I really can't talk about it without thanking you because actually it was, it was a few, um, few conversations with you about what would be helpful for us when we bring families to eye doctors and we accompany families and, and when families go on their own, when they have questions and such. So we um, basically, like you said, talked about what would, what would be helpful for a family to enter an appointment with. And naturally, there's lots of books out there, notebooks that, that have the same sort of um, intent. But we were looking at the idea of kind of keeping a case history of that child in terms of their authorizations from you know, the discharge papers from the hospital, authorizations for further eye exams, for to see specialists, to have all the, um, the the documents, the letters, the reports, all in one place, with um, some basic assessment information that um, with some questions that that um, would help the doctor understand a bit more about how the child was using their vision, um, sort of a, an assessment, a low vision assessment of sorts. Um, some questions that Dr. Bill helped us put together that he felt would be very helpful for him to know in terms of maybe how the child is viewing and there's eccentric viewing of the child squints when they squint at what, you know, is it outside, is it in bright light, um, different kinds of questions that really kind of give a little bit of a picture of that child before they enter that exam room. And then also it gives a place for a pocket area. Actually, it's designed to have a pocket so the parents can insert their questions um, that are ongoing and be able to respond to things quickly um, when there is a question from the physician or, or if they have a, a comment from the physician or the doctor uh, or the optometrist um, that, that they could jot down right at that moment what was, what was said. And again, it's always helpful if you have someone with you to help you with those kinds of things. But basically the notebook is just designed to, to keep all that information together. And in the back there's some really great helpful um, kind of one-page one tip sheets and things about lighting and about contrast and about um, different ways to be able to, to modify your environment at home. So it's just kind of a little bit of a, a mishmash of things, but the initial process is really to give parents a way to be able to organize um, the types of materials they need to enter the doctor's appointment. And how can people obtain that? Do you have ways that you could get that to some of the listeners if they are interested in giving that to their families? Sure, absolutely. They can just contact us at the Braille Institute. Um, probably the best way to do it is just call our office. And our office number is 
906-3112, and you can speak to Maria or myself, Sue, and we'll be happy to send one off to you if, if it's something that you think you or your fam- a family member or someone you might be someone you might know would be interested in having. And that number again is what? It's area code three two three nine zero six three one one two. And this is a great thing if you could spend a half an hour with the family and compile things. When you then go to see your eye doctor and the doctor asks who was the ophthalmologist who did the surgery, you could hand them the business card that you probably have in that notebook. If the doctor wants to see the report from that ophthalmologist, you could then give the doctor a copy of that report. Or the doctor could look at the discharge summary and the doctor could see if there was bleeding in the brain or other types of medical information. And this really, really helps us as doctors to make a diagnosis. When we think about what happened with Paris's son when the doctor first looked at his eyes, there's many times that we could look inside the eye and the structures might look perfectly fine. The reason for that is that we cannot see inside each individual cell. You know, we have hundreds of millions of cells inside the retina and we can't see inside each one. So this is why it may be very helpful for the doctor to be able to look at this notebook and get a lot of this other information to help him or her to make some of these types of diagnoses and also to give parents a better understanding of what types of referrals to other specialists should be made. For example, in a case such as Parissa's son, by looking at the medical notes, the doctor would have been able to tell if there was anything different about the brain. Was he having difficulties with sucking or swallowing, or did it seem as though some of his reflexes weren't functioning? If a child has these kinds of neurological problems, the doctor may think, well, maybe the reason he's not seeing well is because of something within the brain, and let's refer to neurology. But if the doctor then looks at these developmental milestones in the notebook and they look like they're on target, then the doctor might think, gosh, this could be some sort of a retinal condition such as Leber's congenital amaurosis and recommend a special type of test by a pediatric retina specialist. So the book is really something that's very, very helpful. Another thing that I like as as a doctor is I love it when we get these engineer types. They often type out 10 or 15 questions and they hand us these questions right before. When they bring their child in, they introduce their child, and they say, I'd like for you to answer these questions, and they give you 10 or 15 questions. This is really helpful for the doctor because we then know what the parents are really asking, and it's also very helpful when they do bring in that tape recorder or they bring in a friend who's taking notes for them. One of the things that I, as a doctor, that I personally prefer that families do not do is I prefer that they do not bring in the entire clan. Sometimes we see situations where mom and dad are there with the baby and that's really wonderful, but then you see grandma and grandpa, and then in the door comes the other grandma and grandpa, and then you see four other aunts and uncles, and it's just so overwhelming that many times the parents can't even really listen to what we're saying 
because they're trying to take care of the grandparents or they're trying to take care of the other children. So as a doctor, I would prefer that it's only the mom and the dad and the patient and nobody else unless it's going to be a friend or someone else that's going to help them. When there's other siblings, it seems to be more distracting and it becomes very, very difficult. Now, Prissa, did you ever find that it was helpful for you as you made appointments? Did you ever try to gain friendships or relationships with the people who were making the appointments? Did that help you at all? Absolutely. You should absolutely be very kind <laughs> to the people who man the phones <laughs> at your doctor's offices. Yes, um, I've always tried to buy. I hope I've always been polite and courteous. And, you know, after a few years, you spend a lot of time with these people. You get to know them a little bit better, and they get to know you. And, yes, definitely, I think it's important to be kind. And something else that I found that actually can cut back on some of the time that you spend in the ophthalmologist's office, the pediatric ophthalmologist that we see now, he prescribed the drops, the dilation drops for us. And so we have a batch at home. And so he always tells us to go ahead and put the drops into the kids' eyes before we go to the doctor. So in that 20 minutes of the drive, their eyes are, are dilated, and once we get there, he can just take a look, and that cuts out that 20 minutes of waiting. Yeah, that is wonderful. That is so good to hear. I know that there's a lot of doctors who don't feel comfortable doing that, but if you have already had your child's eyes dilated once, you know that they do not have a allergy or an allergic reaction to it, and it is something that really, really saves time. Another thing, too, if you do get to know the receptionist or whoever is making the appointment, you could ask them, what would be the way that I could get my child in and out of there the quickest? You might tell them, well, you know, my child has a low immune system, and, you know, I don't like to keep my child in the waiting room too long because they may catch a cold. you got to remember also Many, many, many of these offices do not clean those toys in the waiting room. So make certain if you are letting your child play with those toys that you bring some of those alcohol wipes or Clorox wipes and clean some of these things because many times these things are really, really filthy. Now, Prissy, you said a couple of things that I really would like for you to repeat to our listeners about where you had mentioned to them if they do make an appointment, try to make it in the morning if their child is better in the morning. And you said to bring some food and drinks. And what are some of the other things that are really helpful to bring when you are bringing your child to the eye doctors? What are some of the toys or blankets or what really was helpful? At the beginning, it was very helpful for me to bring the things that my son attended to visually because I really wanted the doctor to be able to see what I saw because, you know, as, as an ophthalmologist, you get to see my son for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, maybe possibly a year. But for me, I spend a lot, a lot more time with my son, and I get to see the way he visually attends to things. And so I would bring in, the, you know, those certain toys that really grab his attention that I would see him looking at so I could show the doctor what I saw at home. I also made sure to bring, as they get older, you, you know, you bring better gadgets. So now, you know, I will take books to read to them as well as snacks and, you know, an iPad to play with or something like that, something to keep them occupied and still. And since there's two of them, I take someone with me to help. Yeah, those are great ideas. To bring some of the snacks that keeps them occupied for a while or as they're sitting in the exam chair and the doctor's going to do a test, you give them some goldfish crackers or Cheerios or something, 
it really, really makes a huge difference. I think another thing that's also very helpful is that for some children, it's easier for us to examine them or to perform certain tests if they're in different positions. So if your child has a favorite blanket or a quilt or a comforter that usually sleeps on, you know, it's a great idea to also bring that sometimes because sometimes we find it's easier if we just lie the baby down on his or her back, let them play, roll around, do what they're going to do for a few minutes, and then we proceed. So if you have something that is familiar to them, they think it is sort of like a fun and game. Another kind of thing that's also a really nice thing is that in many of the eye doctor's offices now, we have these flat screen computer monitors, and we could put different videos and music and different things on there. So we've had families bring some of those types of the child's favorite music. It might be Baby Einstein. Other times it's a Rolling Stones. You never know what they're going to bring. But these are things that really get the visual attention of the child, and the child doesn't really think that they're having their eyes checked. But we also find that it's also really very, very helpful for some kids that you might even sing a song. As soon as you bring the child into the room, I have had many kids more recently where the parents said, every time that we bring our child into a therapist's office or a doctor's office, we sing a song. It might see, be a hello song or a, you know, good morning song or a Barney song. But when they hear that it's a Barney song, they know it's going to be about time that they're going to play and it's something that's really very, very helpful. Now, Prissa, have there been any things that you have learned from making these appointments where you say, oh, my gosh, I will never do that again? Or were there certain mistakes that had occurred when you made these appointments? Yes, I have learned that if the children are sick or exhibiting any signs of the sickness that is to come, cancel the appointment and make it for another day. Um, I have also learned through trial and error which ophthalmologist has the fewer, you know, fewest amount of people in the waiting room, which ones I can get into the fastest. I have found um, which doctors I found had the best bedside manner and would take the time to explain things to me thoroughly. So all of that comes through, you know, practice and through time. And I think another thing that many of you parents really should consider doing is interview the doctor. Even with the day and age of HMOs and managed care, there are many times more than one doctor within that network. If there's a particular doctor that you really just are not comfortable with, I've had many parents who have called the doctor to try to see if the doctor would answer questions before they made the appointment. And when the doctor did not return the phone call or if the doctor was just very, very short and abrupt, many times these parents just called the manager of the HMO and stated, you know, I am not comfortable with this doctor. I insist on another referral. Or they talk to the pediatrician and they insist on another referring doctor. So this is something that you can do because if a doctor is not willing to return a phone call, it's very, very likely that if you call in the future when your child is having a problem or you have some real concerns or you need a letter written for the school, that doctor may be a bit too busy. As Prissa said, too, I also encourage you not to feel bad about canceling your appointments. If your child is sick or if you are sick 
or another child is sick or there's something wrong where you cannot make it, go ahead and reschedule that appointment. It's not worth it for your child to get more ill by going to have his or her eyes examined when he or she is a bit weak. Also, when a child or an adult is not feeling well, the doctors really do not get a true measurement of their vision. When you have a migraine headache or if you have the flu or even worse yet, the next time you have diarrhea, I bet you that your eyes aren't going to be looking and focusing. You're probably going to keep your eyes closed and you're just going to be frowning. And that's the same thing. When we see children when they're not feeling well, it's really not worth it because these kids aren't paying attention at all to anything that we're showing them. So don't be afraid to reschedule. And remember, there are many, many, many eye doctors. Maybe all of them do. They might all overbook. So if it's at 8 o'clock, they might put three patients in at that time. I know many, many pediatric eye doctors that will see between 50 to 75 children in a day. And what that really equates to, you have maybe five minutes per child. That means there really is very little time to talk. So if you do call the doctor to say, I am really looking for a doctor who's going to inform me and educate me. I really am the type of parent that really wants to learn what I could do to help my child What can I do so that my child's eyes don't get worse? Even if it's alternative medicines, I want to know about that. If a doctor hears you say that, they will remember that. And if they are a caring doctor, they're going to spend that extra time with you. If it's a doctor who really doesn't care, they probably will refer you to another doctor, and that will be better for you because you'll then find a doctor who cares. Fortunately, here in L.A., there are many, many great eye doctors, and there's many great resources for vision care. Um, Parissa, before we open up to questions, where have you found some of the greatest bits of information and, and, and assistance, for example? Have you spoken to other parents and found the names of good eye doctors? How did you find out about technology or vision stimulation? Um How did you as a parent find all this information that you have? Well, as far as the doctors go, it was, um, some of it was through trial and error, just going to different doctors and seeing, you know, how long we waited with this doctor. And then once I found someone that I was comfortable with, we've stayed with, you know, with those particular doctors. Also, like you said, parents are a great resource. I mean, us parents talk and we talk about which doctors we prefer and which therapists we think are great and which ones are not so great. And, you know, so there's a lot of talking that goes back and forth about things that have worked for our children. As far as technology is concerned, I've gotten a lot of knowledge from the Internet and from different conferences that I've gone to, again, from parents and also from the program. You know, at Cal State LA, I was doing the VI program for the last couple of years, and I just learned so much information about various things that I really didn't know before. Another great resource is, is the therapists who come to the house. You know, we've had um, advocates from the Braille Institute come out for the past eight, seven years now, and they've always been a great wealth of information, as well as our children's uh, teachers for the visually impaired and their OT and O&M specialists as well. So there's a lot of information out there to be gotten, and you just have to ask. People are usually so kind and so ready to help you. Yeah, and it's almost just like these food trucks that they have out there. 
if there's a good food truck, everybody's willing to talk about it, aren't they? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, Prissa, can you stay on the line and answer some questions from some of our callers this evening? Absolutely. I would love to. Okay. So all of you, uh, would you go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six, and then you can ask questions for uh, Sue, Parissa, or myself. So press star six, and we'll unmute your phone and answer a few questions. Uh, this is Patty. I had a comment about eyeglasses. Yes, please, Patty. Go ahead. Uh, working with parents in the program, uh, oftentimes their children are prescribed eyeglasses as a uh, product of this going to the eye exam, and oftentimes the parents don't understand exactly when they're supposed to wear the eyeglasses. Is it just for close-up vision, and actually how much distance is in close-up vision? Is it 6 or 12 or 18 inches? And then also, what is distance vision? Do you jump to 10 feet or 20 feet away, or do you take it off, the glasses off for distance vision? Things like that. I just think if you can ask a lot of questions about exactly what the eyeglasses are for is um, helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I think those are really very, very important questions to ask. So if the doctor does recommend glasses, you want to ask those specific questions. Exactly when should my child wear them? Should he wear them all the time? Should she wear them only when I'm reading books to her? Should she wear it only when we're playing with the iPad? Should we watch TV from 10 feet or 5 feet? And these are things that you should expect. You should expect the eye doctor to answer these questions, and these types of answers are usually put in the report. Um, Prissa, did you experience situations like that also where the glasses were prescribed, but you really didn't know when to use them? Well, Dr. Bolas, in my case, it was a little bit different because with my children, the glasses are as much of a, a preventative measure to get them to stop rubbing and to also protect their eyes because they have such limited vision. Oftentimes, they bend over and don't see something that's in front of them, so the fear was always that something could go into their eye. So the doctors had always told us, keep the glasses on as often as possible. And for a while, when my son was really small, sometimes he'd fall asleep with them on. And that, again, was to, you know, stop him from poking and rubbing in his eyes with his fingers. So fortunately, I never had too many questions about the glasses. My big concern was the transition lenses, and there was some debate over whether or not transition lenses would be appropriate for my children because it takes a few seconds, you know, for them to transition from light to dark once you go in or go outside. And because of their, you know, low acuity, the doctor was concerned that it would transition not it wouldn't transition quickly enough basically and take away what they could see but um, we decided that it was important for them to have the protection from the sun and therefore they wear transition lenses but those are all questions you do have to ask great thank you thank you we, we have another question out there hi everyone it's Julie how are you hi, I'm Julie. Grail. hi Julie <laughs> Hello. I have a question um, what would you suggest for um, a, a little bit older child that has um, been going to um, doctor visits for quite a while and has had surgeries and the, um, the actual visit to the doctor has become um, a, kind of a source of anxiety? Um, what kind of suggestions would you um, have for um, reducing that anxiety and helping that child through um, a smoother visit and helping that child become 
be a little bit more cooperative within the visit. Yeah, Julie, if I if I may answer that, uh, do you happen to know what is the source of the anxiety for that child? Is the child very very frightened of all doctors or just the eye doctor? The eye doctor, um, just with um, having surgeries and having doctors poke and prod and just having a history of of um, having eyes hurt. <laughs> And, and then having hurt eyes that have been examined and and just, you know, and so it's become a source of anxiety where to the point where the child can smell. Even if they're not at the doctor's office, certain smells or certain noises um, become a source of anxiety. For instance, the, the noise of a carousel one time created was um, a source of anxiety because it reminded her of a machine in the doctor's office or a certain smell reminded her of the doctor's office. So it became a source of anxiety. Yes. I mean, and of course, okay, go ahead. Yes. Well, many times that is definitely true, and this does sound like a true anxiety. And so when the child does have anxiety, there's a few things that I would do. First of all, I would bring this up with a family counselor. Mm-hmm. So that the family counselor may often have different types of strategies that the parents and the early intervention specialists or anybody else who's working with that child can use to begin to reduce that child's anxiety. For example, if you do know that this child is very, very anxious and whenever there's a smell of the alcohol in the doctor's office, that might be something that there's going to be activities at home that will involve using a little bit of rubbing alcohol to clean something beforehand so the child maybe won't be quite as afraid. I think also just the way that Prissa deals with things with her child, her children, um, it could be very helpful that the eye drops are instilled in the child's eyes at home. The eye drops are usually one of the things that causes the, the greatest amount of crying and screaming and biting amongst the kids. So if the eye drops are going to be put in the eyes at home, that could work out very well. In some cases, it may even be where the eye drops would be put in the child's eyes while the child's asleep. Let's say that we have an appointment that's going to be at 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, we may go ahead and put in the eye drops at 7 o'clock. And then by the time that we get the child to the doctor's office at 8 o'clock, we're ready to go. The eyes are already dilated and uh, the drops usually last for about three hours. So those would be some suggestions that I would have to consult with a family therapist. The therapist would give you some strategies to help to reduce some of those types of anxieties, and that would be something at home. Maybe having the eye drops put into the eyes at home and then explain to the doctor. I would maybe ask the doctor that, Maybe the doctor will wear a you know a Hawaiian shirt or something instead of a white lab coat. Yeah. Or maybe the child will be examined in a different part of the room. We had a boy who was so anxious, he would not even come inside. He wouldn't even come inside the building. So we did the eye exam in the parking lot. And so there's different ways that things could get done, giving them treats and rewards. And, you know, within within time, they often get better. So... Prissa, do you have any other suggestions, or, or Sue? I'll go ahead, Prissa. If you have any, I was, I was thinking about that, too. Oh, no, I was I was just thinking about how tough that is, and I think... It is hard. 
it is oftentimes hard. you just kind of have to weather through it, you know, and yeah. just make it for the first appointment in the morning and get him in. I know with my daughter we have to hold her. You know, we have to hold her down physically while the doctor looks because she doesn't like anyone that close to her face looking into her eyes, which is understandable. So, but, you know, as, as they age, they get better, so hopefully it will pass. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, and again, you know, and I, I think every child is different, and, and as much as we all have great great ideas and suggestions and thoughts, you know, it, it might work for one child. It's not may not work for something some another child. So we have to identify that each child is going to be different. But Dr. Bill's suggestion and getting um, help from us, you know, family therapist is a great one because obviously we're always looking for more resources and help for our kids. But you know, just just you know, talking to a child, reading books about going to the doctor, writing a story about what it felt like to go to a doctor, maybe after the doctor appointment, to try to debrief the child a bit. Um, I think there's lots of ways we can do to prepare a child for a doctor, even the doctor visit, even though it might not have an effect at that particular moment. Like you said, later on down the line with enough of that kind of intervention, perhaps it might help the child to relax. But, again, every child is different, and all of our good suggestions, you know, may it, it, it just may take longer for certain children. You know, so, you know yeah. what, that, that made me think of something as well. Perhaps if you can somehow get the child to associate the doctor with some kind of special treat he never gets otherwise. So you <laughs> kind of start to, you know, like Pavlov's the conditioning, classical conditioning, yeah. you know, to maybe a, a treat that he only gets when he goes to the doctor or in the parking mm-hmm. lot or immediately afterwards. And that way yeah. it starts to give him some kind of positive association instead of just the negative. That's a really good idea. I remember one doc, one visit we had one family put together a, a, just a basket of special toys, just very, very small basket of special toys that she could only bring to the doctor office. And it was really, it did help. It did help. Um, and it, it kind of, again, associated the positive. Good idea. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Another question? Yeah. I have just one quick question for you, Chris, and this is just a simple one. I'm just wondering, have you asked, did you ever, have you ever brought, like, pictures of your child or a video of your child uh, of their kids, so that to be able to help the doctors kind of see some of the activity that they do at home, or that might help them be able to see that kind of uh, any kind of activity. You know what? Actually, Sue, I haven't, but I have friends who have. Okay. Especially nowadays with all the you know the technology that's out today, it's really really simple to do. So I've had friends mm-hmm. who videotaped and then sent that video via email to the doctor. Mm-hmm. So even mm-hmm. before they went to go to the doctor's visit, they went ahead and forwarded the email. And, you know, asked, is this what I think it is? Because they were Googling and they were scared. So I, I <laughs> yeah. think it's a great idea. Okay. This is one you had having experience with that. Okay. Great. Thank you. What May you- I chime in? This is Nancy. Hi, Nancy. <laughs> Hi. I, I really agree with um, either the pictures or the videos. I've had a couple families who have done that. One was uh, videotaping something that they thought was seizure activity which uh, was very helpful for the neurologist. And another was of a child alerting to a light box, which was extremely helpful to the pediatric ophthalmologist. Hmm. Yeah, so Uh, all of these things, with everybody having iPhones and iPads, we have many ways that we could record the data and we could very easily carry it with us and show the doctors. Let's see, we have time for one more question. Does anybody else there have a question for Prisa, Sue, or myself? Okay, well, we thank all of you for your time, and this podcast, we want to thank Mr. Joe Yurka and Airs LA for recording it, 
Airs Alley has a library of all of these podcasts that we do on the Braille Institute series, and you could find all of these podcasts at www.airsla.org. That's www.airsla.org, and it will also be on the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org. If any of you have any any questions for Prissa, Prissa, is there an email or other contact information that you want to share that they might be able to contact you? Absolutely. Unfortunately, my email is really long, but I would be happy to share it. It's um, Prissa Calentary. So that's P is in Paul, A R I S is in Sam, A K A L A N is in Nancy, T is in Tom, A R I, Parissa Calentary at fbcglobal.net. Okay, great, great. And Sue, you want to give out your email if anybody wants to get in touch with you about the notebooks? Sure, sure. Um, they can email me at um, at Sue S U E Parker P A R K E R hyphen Strafasi S as in Sam T R A S as in Frank A C I at Braille Institute. That's two L's. dot org. And I know it's a long one too. <laughs> yes, it sure is. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, uh, you could contact me at Dr. Bill Foundation, D R B I L L Foundation at gmail dot com. So, uh, Prissa and Sue, thank you again for being on the show, and that we hope that you all join us again next month. We'll be on the second Tuesday of March. Yes, March thirteenth. And the and the topic. Oh, it's going to be uh, other pediatric eye conditions, uh, diseases, uh, retinal conditions, coloboma, and aniridia, kind of a ground round of things. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. So thank you, everybody, and we hope to see you again next month, and you guys have a great Valentine's Day.